Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. everybody. Uh, Welcome back to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan, and happy first Sunday after Easter. Uh, I know it's not the most exciting name in the world, but it's actually really beautiful to me. You know, sometimes we think about Easter as just being this one Sunday that's usually around March, April, whatever. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, and then we just kind of get back to things as normal. But the, the reality of the name for today is Easter continues on. We continue to celebrate resurrection and new life, and that's indeed what we're going to be doing today. And not only that, um, but today is actually Easter for our Greek Orthodox brothers and sisters. Um, They operate on a different calendar like us, and just like any good family, we can't agree on things, and so we just kind of let them uncomfortably sit next to one another. But very happy Easter to any of our Orthodox brothers and sisters that might be tuning in. Um, Today, we're beginning a new series called Original Church. So for the past several months, We've been in our quest to understand what maturity in Christ looks like. We've been using the gospel of Luke uh, to gaze at the person of Jesus as the truly human one and to gain inspiration from watching him and how he thinks, how he acts, how he feels, but also how he's challenging his followers to live more into his ways. And we kind of finished that up um, last week at Easter in Luke chapter 24, where we looked at the resurrection of Jesus, but then Jesus with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, ministering to their disappointment and disillusionment as he's resurrecting their hearts hopes for what it really means to be in his kingdom. And I kind of finished uh, by saying this, what is true of the risen Jesus will one day become true of us. In the meantime, mature Christians anticipate signs of resurrection everywhere, the new being birthed from the old. So I think that was a really wonderful way to wrap up that original Jesus series. And now we're going to continue on in Luke's writings into uh, what is called Acts or Acts of the Apostles, which is kind of uh, the second part of... Uh, of his writing. And it's kind of unique among all of the gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the synoptic gospels. And then John is being a little bit different. Um, Matthew and Mark and John all kind of finish where they're at with Jesus kind of giving commands to the, the church and then ascending into heaven. But Luke elects to continue on the story into the second book called uh, Acts. The closest I could think of in terms of movies is maybe like, you know, Wayne's World 1 was such a success that they went ahead and they filmed Wayne's World 2, which is just as good a movie, if not slightly better, because they'd figured out the formula. That's maybe the worst way to think about Luke Acts. But these two stories belong together. It's not this, this new thing that's happening necessarily, but it's a continuation on of what it was that we saw in the Gospel of Luke. But we move from focusing on what the person Jesus was doing in his physical life and his teaching and his life, death, resurrection, ascension, to now what is the spirit of Jesus doing through the early church? The book of Acts is about the continuing work of King Jesus and the people that he has gathered to reveal his kingdom to the world. And so what I want to challenge all of us to do over the next six weeks in this series, Original Church, is to read the book of Acts with that lens. Just as we were reading Luke and saying, Jesus, what are you doing as the truly human one? We continue that on, but we say, Spirit of Jesus, what is it that you're doing through the church 
through these first followers, these believers of yours, and how are they thinking and acting and feeling because they've been inspired by your presence in their lives as they go out to reveal the kingdom wherever they are. So I'm going to pray, um, and we're going to jump right into this. So, uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us this morning. And again, Lord, you know, I'm so thankful that we have uh, technology available to us to still in some way gather. And, you know, I, I find myself grieving sometimes, Lord, that this isn't um, the, what is the ultimate for us in terms of getting together in physical space and sharing all of um, the, sharing worship and teaching and fellowship together. But uh, I am still thankful that we're able to gather in this way today, Lord. I pray that you continue to guide us through this season of uncertainty, um, that we can grieve and mourn the things that come along that um, are not what we are used to, but in that you can continue to birth hope for the future, that we can come out of this stronger, more in love with you, more in love with one another. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so in this series, we're actually just going to be focusing on one passage for six weeks, just a few verses in Acts chapter two, um, which is a rather famous passage um, about some of the uh, practices of the early church, kind of seeing what were the things that bound them together. But not only are we going to be examining each of the, the little <clears throat> portions of that passage, one after the other for six weeks, uh, but two o'clock every Sunday, we're going to have a Zoom conversation where you can jump on and we're going to all just kind of share our experiences with each of these practices, what we've learned, what we found helpful. And my hope is that everybody walks away kind of encouraged um, by learning from one another what it really means to be the modern church. And so we're going to look at this passage uh, for six weeks and I'm going to read it to you in different translations each week just so we kind of get a rounder shape to it. So this is this famous passage in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. So they, meaning the first Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, it's not until much later in the story that these early followers of Jesus are called Christians or Christians, which means little Christs, which was originally an insult invented by uh, the Roman Empire to say, oh, look at these people walking around thinking they're these little Christs. But in the beginning, it was simply called the way. And the way was a very strange sect of Judaism that claimed that the Messiah that God had promised their ancestors for centuries had now finally come in this rabbi named Jesus, but that Jesus had been put to death for his, um, for his vision of this kingdom, this new reality of God, but that he had raised himself to life on the third day, kind of proving that he was who God said he was. And it begins as an expression of Judaism, but it's not long before we see that it's opened up to incorporate in non-Jews or Gentiles, uh, because the message becomes far bigger than anybody had anticipated for it to be. Now, I think it's very important for us to note with this passage, with some others, that when we look at the early church and we study what those first Christians were doing, 
that we are approaching Acts not for replication, but for inspiration. I've kind of paid attention to a lot of the conversations online among church leaders and, and, uh, and, and other, other various people talking about in the midst of this coronavirus, when we've all had to go digital, find other ways of doing church, what does this mean in the long run? And I have seen a lot of people rather giddy with this new reality that all of a sudden this is going to do away with, with big churches and their buildings and the production and the programs, and we're all going to go back to house churches, just like they did at the beginning of Acts, and we're going to get gathered together in small groups, and that's going to be the answer. And I think, unfortunately, that kind of thinking can be rather short-sighted, because what we're trying to do is just replicate what they were doing in the first century, rather than asking the much deeper question, which is, what does it mean for us to be faithful to the Spirit of Jesus in the same way that our forebearers were 2,000 years ago? That the form may change, but we want the faithfulness to be the same. And I think that's where we have an opportunity to read this, not so that we can replicate what they're doing in their setting, but actually to be inspired by the attitudes that they have, by the way they hold the gifts that God has given them. And then to kind of creatively think into how do we do that now in the 21st century, where we too can be considered the faithful to Jesus Christ. And so in that very first line, uh, we find a really great little summary of the four uh, practices that were central to the early church that we consider central as well in the 21st century. I just want to read that again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And this is just already, in the, in the, right at the beginning, a beautiful little ecosystem of worship that contains within it such a rich life of immersion in the story of God, of being transformed through participating in the body of Christ and giving a sense of mission for why we are here and what it is that we are to do for the world. And I think in reality, when we look at those four elements, we can very quickly recognize that we can't leave one out for the sake of the others, which unfortunately we're very prone to do. And this is what happens. If we don't have teaching, without teaching, we drift back to the culture that we came from. That it was the apostles' teaching, this radical new way of gathering ourselves around Jesus Christ as our Lord that saved people from their surrounding cultural assumptions about what God is like or how the world works or what it means to be a human being. And when we diminish the place of teaching, especially coming back to what it is that the apostles taught, or that we have kind of limited lenses in place when we read the Bible that are kind of trying to reinforce the things that we already believe or that we've picked up from surrounding culture, it's very easy for us to drift away from the gospel message and find ourselves picking up on things that aren't actually of Jesus. The second is fellowship, which the, the word means that, that, that gathering, that, that deep gathering with one another, deep community. Without fellowship, we become isolated and we can't sustain our faith. A lot of people are rather gleefully saying, well, maybe this can be the new pattern for church. No, nobody in our church, granted, I've, I've never heard this from any of you, um, but other people are saying, wouldn't it be great if, if from now on church was just digital and we could sit on our couches and we could, we could pull up a church service and we can, we can do church that way, kind of in the same way that we would roll on to our favorite Netflix series or whatever it might be. And I think that's tragic because it misses that one of the core ethos, ethoses, 
ethoses, whatever it is, one of the, <laughs> one of the core beliefs of the Christian faith is, is physicality. You know, that Jesus came, or God came into a body in Jesus, that the symbols that God gives us through Jesus are these physical symbols that we gather together in this physical space where we can embrace one another, we can sing together. There's this materiality to it that is inherently good. And for, us, for that to be robbed from us, we find ourselves in isolation. And unfortunately, I know so few people who've decided that they're going to exit church as it is, and it's just going to be just them and Jesus, and they're just going to follow Jesus on their own terms. Rarely do we see those patterns leading to a sustainable, vibrant faith. And I've said it many times before, I think we cannot be authentic followers of Jesus without the church. And I don't mean the programs and the slogans and all of that, but I mean the body being invested in the new family of God. Third thing is uh, the breaking of bread, a holy communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. We use a lot of different words for it. That without the breaking of bread, Jesus' death and resurrection slip from the center of our active participation. In the same way that the apostles' teaching keeps us immersed in the God that's revealed in Jesus as the center of everything that we believe, so the breaking of bread, the Holy Eucharist, becomes the center of everything that we participate in. And even here early on, they were celebrating the Holy Communion. This was different than the other meals that they shared. And the first church actually used to do this as often as they gathered together every day. And it was a little bit later that it became a weekly practice as the church increased in size. But that central symbol becomes for us this living symbol that we're always keeping the death and the resurrection of Jesus at the, the center of who we are and what it is that we're doing. So again, our practices don't drift off into the surrounding culture. And then finally, prayer. Without prayer, we lose the connection between heaven and earth. You know, we can come to church or, or tune in online and we can be intellectually stimulated by good teaching. Um, we can connect with other people and believing that, you know, church is a social club. We can even participate in symbols like communion, like baptism. But if we forget about prayer, then we're only stuck in this world. Your prayer is us choosing to position ourselves between heaven and earth to act as the ambassadors, that as we pray, we're constantly in dialogue with God so that through us, the kingdom of God might be revealed. And so teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, it's this rich ecosystem that keeps us faithful, keeps us on the path that we are continuing to follow Jesus with everything we are in our allegiance to him, but that we're also linking arms with one another and doing this thing together. And so uh, today I want to focus specifically on that first one, uh, the apostles' teaching. Now, you may be sitting at home right now and saying, Ryan, what was it that the apostles actually taught? And I'd say that is an excellent question and you obviously looked at my notes because that's what I wrote right here. What is it that the apostles actually taught? We have so many assumptions about what the gospel is or the good news, but there's this, like I was saying, this imperative for us to come in and to really carefully listen to the first apostles and to see what is it that they were preaching? What was their vision of the good news, the gospel? And then how do we make that true in our lives? And then in turn, that that is what we teach. 
And so this little passage in the end of Acts 2 is part of a much larger story. And so what happens is that Jesus tells the, the early disciples, the apostles, go to this upper room and you're going to wait. And eventually I'm going to send my spirit to anoint you and to tell you what to do next. And so they're, they're, it's the feast of Pentecost. The disciples are sitting in this room and a wind rushes through and anoints them and these little tongues of fire come on them and they go out into the city and they begin to preach in all of these different languages. And so the Pentecost festival, or in Hebrew, it's called Shavuot. It's called the Feast of Weeks. And two things were being celebrated in this festival. Number one, it was a harvest festival. So this is where everybody's bringing their grain offerings to the temple and making a sacrifice of thankfulness that God has provided. And the second thing that's being celebrated on Pentecost or Shavuot is the giving of the Torah to Moses, the, the law. This becomes uh, the central guiding factor for the life of the Jewish people. And it's amazing on a symbolic level that these are the two things that are being celebrated on Pentecost because this becomes the new thing that God is doing uh, through this early church. And so, um, you know, Jews have gathered from all over the known world to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of weeks. And the, the early apostles, they go out and they begin preaching in all of these other languages. And everybody turns and says, oh my goodness, this is amazing. They're speaking my language. And they have this kind of Galilean accent. So these guys, how would they know Parthian and Mede and Elamite and stalactites and stalagmites? And how do they know all of these other languages? And then Peter gets up and he preaches what is considered the first evangelistic sermon in the whole book of Acts, the first presentation of the good news. And his sermon is a sermon to a Jewish people. So what does he do? He tells them the story that they already know, but he ties it all together in a way that they realize that Jesus, who they claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God, is the person they've been waiting for all along. And he begins a story with Abraham and then Moses and then David and the prophets. And he kind of finishes out his sermon like this in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And I love that that, that number is in there. It was 3,000 were saved because to me, that's, that's Pentecost. That's the harvest festival. There was a, a ripe harvest to be received there. But not only is it the harvest festival, it's the giving of the Torah to Moses, which is to say, let me give you the guidance for how to live a faithful life. But on Pentecost, it's the disciples and then these first believers that receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as the guide for how to live in this new reality of God. You know, often people ask me, what is the core message of the gospel? If you had to boil it down, what is the central tenet of the gospel? And that's what I want to talk about right now. 
I think we have to be careful because it's our temptation to turn the gospel into a formula that if A, then B, and we do C, then this is the outcome. And that kind of formulaic understanding of the gospel turns it into this transaction. If we do the things in the right way and we do the rain dance, and then we're gonna get these benefits and that's what it's all about. And unfortunately, a lot of times we've been trained to ask the wrong questions of the gospel. What are those wrong questions? Anytime that we say, how do I this? And then whatever it is that we want. Because those kinds of questions of the gospel make it me-centered. It's a me-centered gospel. There's things that I want in life and I'm coming to Jesus and somehow he's gonna fulfill my needs. And Jesus becomes a means to an end. And it becomes a very selfish vision of the gospel. And before long, we realize we can't read the apostles' teaching. We can't read the gospels, the story of Jesus, but we also can't read the letters um, that these men and women wrote to those early believers to keep them faithful to King Jesus. And so this, for me, is how to understand what we mean by gospel or good news. The gospel is a declaration followed by an invitation. The gospel is a declaration. This is who God is. This is what God is doing, followed by an invitation. Now, do you want to get on board with that? What is the core declaration of the gospel? Someone asked me if I could sum up the gospel, what would it be? And I pointed them to uh, two passages of scripture. The first was this. In Mark chapter one, this is the very first gospel, the very first verse in the first gospel. And this is what it says. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. And the word Messiah means anointed one. We sometimes see the word Christ, which is the, the, the Greek word for the same thing. And it means anointed one, but it really means king. And if you know anything about the first century, the, that phrase, son of God, had these political connotations because Caesar considered himself to be the son of God, to have the divine right to the throne. And so there was a statement right here in the beginning, the first gospel, the first line, the first gospel say, here's the good news. Here it is. Are you ready for it? Jesus is king and Caesar is not. And Caesar means any of the systems of the world, any forms of control or authority that are outside of what God is doing. That is not who's truly in charge. <coughs> Jesus is the king. And again, when we look at that little portion in Acts, the kind of end of Peter's sermon, this is what he claims. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God has proven that Jesus is who he said he is. And I love this, this powerful emotional moment that we see in the story where it says that they were cut to the heart. The listeners were cut to the heart because they knew God's story. They knew what God was like. They knew that God had promised that he was going to send a Messiah. And then they realized, oh my gosh, maybe they're right. Maybe this guy that we had crucified five weeks earlier, maybe he was actually God's chosen Messiah. What have we done? It says they were cut to the heart. And he says, brothers, what shall we do? And then Peter says, repent and be baptized. And so there is the invitation 
the declaration, Jesus is now king. Now, the invitation is to repent. We talk about a repentance a lot in our community that, you know, in, in the Greek, repent means to change the way you're thinking. Because when you change the way that you've been thinking about things, you're changing all of your assumptions about who God is and how the world works and who you're supposed to be. And that changes the way that you feel and you act and you find yourself deeper into this new reality. And the older Hebrew word for repentance means come home, which I love in the context of this story, preaching to Jews, what Peter's saying is, hey, come home, come back to God. Come back to his story, recognize that he is faithful and he's done what he promised he was going to do. You know, uh, several years ago in my ministry school, uh, in the very first uh, session that we had, I asked this question, if you could sum up the gospel message in one line, what would it be? And one of my students whom we still keep in contact with, he's a wonderful person. At that point, he was rather jaded. He was a church kid. He'd grown up. It's like he'd heard everything before and he raised his hand. He said, "Uh, Jesus died for your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. And I said, that's not the gospel. And of course, that got his attention. He sat up. I said, turn to Matthew chapter four and I want you to read verses 17 and 23. And he did, and this is what uh, those verses say. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness from among the people. I said, here we are at the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. He's already preaching the good news. And the reality is that 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 standard trope that we so often hear, Jesus died for your sins so you can go to heaven when you die. It's not wrong. It's just not complete. Did Jesus die for your sins? Yes. Will you go to heaven when you die? Yes. But it is not the central tenet of the gospel. And what we're finding here is Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom. And so often what we find in our modern interpretations of the gospel is we get this this indignant split between kingdom and cross. At one extreme, we have many Christians who have this vision of the kingdom, and that's the gospel. But what ends up getting, the story that gets told is, you know, Jesus had this amazing ministry where he was bringing justice, and he was fighting for the underdog, and he was upending all of our social systems. And it's kind of a shame that he got cut down so early on. Like, if he had a few more years, maybe he could have really done something. And then at the other extreme, we have this vision of the gospel that says, well, Jesus said and did some strange things that don't make a whole lot of sense, but really at the end of the day, it's that he died for our sins, so we're okay before God, and we get to go to heaven when we die, or we get to avoid hell when we die, and that's basically the core of the gospel. When we really begin to listen to the apostles and the vision of the gospel that they're giving, first of all, in their stories of Jesus, in the book of Acts, and then the letters they write, we find this integration of kingdom and cross belonging together. That the cross was not this weird little aside that was the tragic downfall of Jesus's ministry, but everything that Jesus did during his life was not this strange kind of warm-up for the thing that mattered, but it becomes this one narrative that the cross becomes the place where Jesus is inaugurated and that his kingdom reality bursts forth into the world. And so when we repent, we begin to rethink even what we think that the gospel means and we start to listen to Peter and Paul and the others. Peter says, repent and be baptized. 
baptism being another symbol that we were given by Jesus of moving from death to life, from the old ways to the new. And it's interesting here that he's saying, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And what were the sins that he was speaking to them of? It's that you crucified him that you chose the ways of the world as it was, that you would rather have things turn out the way that you wanted and you killed God's Messiah because it wasn't the package that you expected God to give to fulfill everything that you desired, that it was your sins that put Jesus on the cross. And that's true for you and I too, that it's our sins, it's our way of choosing ways that are other than the ways that God desires for us to live and maintaining our own systems and our own ethics and our own senses of power and privilege. Those sins get sinned onto Jesus in the cross. But rather than it overcoming him, he takes that sin and he buries it and he overcomes sin and death in this dramatic upside down narrative and comes out on the other side, the king of the entire universe. And so it's not just that in our baptism, we are, we are saved from our sins of the old way of doing things, but we're also saved into the new life of the Holy Spirit. Again, echoing that Pentecost theme that God gives us this new guide in this new life with him. And it's through baptism that we make Jesus' story our story. That just as he descended into death and is raised into new life, so we enter into death and are raised to new life. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.